So welcome Roy Austin with Strategic Development Partners, longtime friend and colleague and client. This series is just about literally collecting stories from people that I have the privilege to talk to all the time. I feel like more than me should hear the insights, the perspectives, the experience, the history, and the context because it just it informs me, it informs my work, it grounds me uh, immensely, and I just I wanted to share that. So thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. One of the things that we talk about when you and I have the opportunity to connect is it's a lot of things. It's community, it's culture, it's present opportunity, it's business, it's industry, it's how do you decipher role and responsibility in the skin that you're in and, and what does that look like and how does it take shape and form and I just wanted to hear from you on your story and how you got to this particular point and what you've seen and what you've learned. So it's a lot, but I'll let you just share what comes first. Well, you know, we were just talking uh, before we started this on the song uh, Marvin Gaye called Funky Reincarnation. And I, 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 I liked that song when I first heard it and uh, I couldn't make it a ringtone because I really wanted to. Uh, because that has been uh, sort of the story of my life is that you, and the story of my work is that you, you can remake yourself at every stage of your life, and that's the beauty of being an American, mm-hmm. is that you can remake life at any stage, and no matter what your adversity is, if you have the courage and the curiosity, um, you can pursue it, uh, despite obstacles that um, all of us have and stories that have been part of our lives. I mean, I grew up in New Orleans and uh, uh, mother and father who loved me and grandmother and grandfather who loved me just as much and uh, was fortunate to uh, to have them in my life. And, and um, they were four individuals. They were not, um, they were not, men and women who were shy about who they were, but they were everyday people. My grandmother was a uh, lady who uh, cleaned houses, and my grandfather was a uh, railroad railroad worker, and my mother was a nurse, and my daddy was a construction foreman, so I I didn't grow up with a golden spoon. Um, But my habits and intellectual curiosity and passion came from them because they were never a dull moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were um, readers. You know, my grandmother and grandfather might have had a 10th grade education, but they read the newspaper every day. They watched the evening news. They uh, they debated. Uh, my mother and this father. Is this the Times-Picayune? This was the Times-Picayune. Uh, and we had two newspapers way back when. It was mm-hmm. State's Item and Times-Picayune. And mm-hmm. this is when you had a black and white TV with only three uh, stations, ABC, NBC, CBS, and you know you broke bread every day at 5.30 um, to watch the news, and, and that was the, the national news. So that curiosity, the love of baseball, my grandfather and I loved baseball. We watched games together. That was, he and I's bond um, was watching the Yankees play and watching Oakland A's, and then Reggie Jackson was favorite player at that time was a Hall of Famer now was uh, and his surname was uh, Martinez which our family name is Martinez in, in generations back and so there was we always used to joke that he's our cousin and so it was <laughs> Probably. and and so it was that type of you know uh, curiosity and reading and and passion so in, in New Orleans where everything is driven by relationships and culture uh, you're rich in it, you're drowning in it. And mm-hmm. so it's, but that shaped me. Um, been a Catholic education. Um, and I will say the Catholic education was probably the second most strongest influence. Uh, I went to Catholic schools, went to a Jesuit high school in New Orleans, which was. I didn't know that. Yeah. That explains so much. I call them the thinking Catholics. Not they that the, the others don't, but they deeply ponder and they, think. And, they deeply yeah. ponder and they are risk takers, they're rebels. Mm-hmm. Um, now they have their issues too. No doubt. Um, but they, the Pope is now a, a Jesuit. Jesuit. And it's so that, that grounding of that, that reinforced the curiosity. Mm-hmm. 
uh, now explain the dichotomy of culture. And there was two worlds you lived in. You lived in the neighborhood of richness, of the love of your neighborhood, of people who look like you. And then you go on to the high school where you're one of only 13 or 14 in a 200-person um, class that look like you. So mm-hmm. you, you, you begin to form the 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 two worlds that you have to begin to matriculate and then but it was a wonderful experience wonderful but learning you grow up quickly mm-hmm. um, and that that was a place where I grew up quickly you but the but it was it was definitely um, cemented the mm-hmm. notion of curiosity and culture and passion and and knowing that you were always in two worlds at once. Uh, so that that experience, and it was just the '70s and the '80s. So America was going through an interesting period. I, you know, my mother was a nurse, and my dad was a construction worker. So my mother, I could I could not see myself being in medicine, nor could I see myself being in construction. Uh, it was, but I find myself in development, but also I love health. So it's mm-hmm. strange how life has a way of fusing the stepping stones of your parents and even your grandparents in in many ways. Um, I hope I'm asking, answering the question, but that's that was my basis. I went in the Marine Corps, went to college. Um, Where did you go to school? I went to University of San Francisco. Really? Yeah, I lived in California and loved it, mm-hmm. um, um, and had wonderful experiences in San Francisco. It was a Jesuit college, uh, so that Jesuit education followed, you know, you. followed me. Um, and when I went there, it was interesting. I got I got exposed to the global thinking around um, the, 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 from the from what I learned about being bicultural in New Orleans and mm-hmm. matriculating two worlds, living in the Bay Area during that time. You realize that there was a global village of people having to be dual thinkers. Uh, oh, just the empathy level, I feel, is high. In that community, well, and in my mind, it wasn't that high there. Really? Uh, it it was. Um, it, it, I, I, the way we have to define what empathy is and define mm-hmm. what community means. There, I saw. I learned to navigate different cultures because, in San Francisco at that time, I don't think it's that way now. But you had fifty different ethnic groups in one one city and then watch the political steps of how to get elected and how leadership works and the neighborhood power and structure. So it was that education for me of people from all over the world. It was a global village. Whereas in New Orleans, it was just black and white. Mm-hmm. There it was a global village. But then you learn the, the, the spirit of bonding us with people. And um, I worked in the San Francisco school system. I did conflict resolution. Uh, which was fun and was too short. I probably would have stayed. I ended up having to move back home after uh, to take care of my parents, who both became ill at the same time. But that uh, that then went to work at Loyola University in New Orleans and just did more conflict resolution work and uh, team building, strategic planning, uh, and really did a lot of mediation work in organizations for seven years. There and that was th- those two periods of, of life of learning about listening to people, uh, listening to the hopes and fears, and and bringing the best out of people, bringing the best out of organizations that hit roadblocks was probably that period of life, and it, it was a way of ma- of marrying my intuition mm-hmm. and getting paid for it. So I could what I do naturally, I was able to get paid for and being able to leverage my intuitive nature and spirit and demand understanding culture and organizations and I that probably is a skill set in a period that I live with and utilize every day of my life Uh, and so during that period um, you know became an entrepreneur did some telecommunications entrepreneurship bought and sold a company Life evolved, uh, started doing policy work, got hired at Xavier University in New Orleans and put together a policy institute. Um, did that until the storm hit. And um, once the storm hit, I moved to Austin, Texas. Um, Austin, Texas, and then began to do work back and forth. I never moved back to New Orleans, but 
um, ended up doing some of the same where all, all it was almost like your life stepping stones yeah. um, played out in every part of helping a community that you loved recover and rebuild. Um, and, and with that uh, led to uh, development work and uh, learned how communities get built and financed and remade. Uh, and uh, that was one heck of an experience. And ironically now I find myself still with those same stepping stones in life of culture, community, redevelopment uh, as, a, as a circular part of everything that I do mm -hmm. still. Um, I'm now embarking on health and housing and um, also some more public-private partnership work nationwide uh, all around the same issues of really remaking, rebuilding communities. Uh, you know, you can, you can rebuild the character, but you can't necessarily rebuild a soul. Mm -hmm. But you definitely can, and that's been, you know, goes back to the song of reincarnation. I think America's in a place of reincarnation, and the built environment matters in, in reincarnation because it has to be about a cultural global village. And that's my vision of the work that I do. Cultivating a global village and making sure that it sustains itself and evolves. You talk a lot about... Um, culture and community and connection and I, it's awesome to hear that you get paid off of that instinct because you are very intuitive you're an incredible listener my question to you is how much do you think you know there's a book and we've talked about it like the ethics of identity and that it's kind of arbitrary that you're born into where you're born or you look the way you look or you have the background that you have but there's there's something in that that you lean into and it becomes not just who you are, part of your identity, but it becomes kind of the story and the narrative that you tell and the work that you pursue. How has that impacted you? Because now from New Orleans to San Francisco, and I guess what I meant by the high level of empathy in my mind, if you look at cities or geography, um, geographical places in, in the United States, you know, DC is where a lot of policy and power take form. And New York is really where decisions get made that affect commerce and you know, the South, which I love. I love Louisiana. I don't know much of, you know, I love Atlanta. But New Orleans, I feel like, just has a soul, a soul mm -hmm. unlike any other place in this entire country. I agree. The, the empathy that I spoke of in San Francisco, I feel like a lot of the cultural movements, a lot of the, um, the collective consciousness of the United States and moving forward certain rights or certain topics come from there and are a little bit more nurtured along with a lot of regulations and a lot of stipulations, but I feel like having been in that area often, and most recently a lot, um, that there is a different sense of awakeness. And I know that there's still cultural clashes in neighborhoods and struggles within communities and power dynamics that go into it. But if you were to look at a map in terms of not just liberal movements, but movements in general, a lot of it has been fostered to some degree in Northern California. You know, Northern California is just like Austin, like New Orleans, like most major, like New York, mm -hmm. uh, even Miami, where you, you, you've you got a remaking going on. Mm -hmm. um, remaking because the, 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 the global trends of technology has completely structurally changed America. We're entering what I call the succession economy, where... Um, where where we used to make things uh, and the, we don't make things anymore. What we have to contribute to the economy is our brains. Uh, and that's going to be the driver of the new economy is brain power, not necessarily making things. And so making brain power requires interconnectivity of people. And um, young people don't want to, be on a farm anymore and uh, want to be in a, in a production institute anymore. I mean, our education system was built upon production, uh, where we people created MBAs and, and you got an MBA because you were going to work for a company that you produced it. Efficiencies. You were f functional thinkers. Mm -hmm. uh, and we now have a clash. And our structural economy 
is makes it is 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 even worse of communities of color because we were always excluded in many ways from those economies uh, as a as a window of opportunity um, or window of choices. We didn't have as many choices. Well, now that is really, that that's widened. Um, and in fact, I think communities of color have more choice now uh, because of the cheapening of technology, uh, yeah. because of the brain. I, I the said democratization it, of information. Right. It's accessible. Now, having said that, the centers like San Francisco and even New Orleans post-Katrina, um, the, the people move to where they believe they have a place. Mm-hmm. You sometimes price out people who have been there all their lives, yeah. neighborhoods, and unfortunately, San Francisco has priced out the people who have been there yeah, for generations. It does, and it has, and uh, it's working through it. And, uh, and so has New Orleans, so has Austin. New so, York. So has New York. Um, so we're in a period of remaking uh, of America. While there's, it's pain to remake, um, culture matters. I will say there was a couple of books that probably uh, changed my life and made me really understand the science of culture and, and time uh, and community. And it was a writer by the name of Edward Hall who wrote a book called The Dance of Life. And it was the other dimension, other dimension of time, and he talked about the original Americans, which is where he studied in New Mexico. Um, different stories of how they resisted community and um, had a voice, uh, and his series of books studied the where people came from, not just when they came to America, where were they before, and how did they live their lives and the customs. And, and when you move to America, you, 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 you brought some of those customs, mm-hmm. um, um, whether you realized it or not. Uh, but one of the things that came from that was understanding that he said uh, that there was a richness that was ignored of communities of color. There was a richness that was ignored because it wasn't valued as part of an economy. You think that was economy-based or just... Other, other was was foreign, and other was scary, and other was something that you needed to wash out or wipe out to survive or to thrive. All of in it the was, new America. All of it was based on the economy. Whether we can, it's all about money, and it was all about quality of life and money, and and they, you know, people came to America because they were escaping a poor quality of life. Mm-hmm where they were by any means necessary. So you come here and they brought others. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So you, the economy was... You quickly got into form so that you could thrive. So you could thrive. Yeah. Um, and Eventually, though, I feel like it became, for the people who were here, like my you know, my father's generation, or we're talking, we talk a lot about amongst the team, there is the home life that you have where you may speak Spanish and you engage in a very Latino uh, view and perspective and, and dynamic, and then there's your public life. Well, for this generation, it's fortunate enough that that those two, that duality can exist mm-hmm. completely. But in my father's time or his mother's time, you were um, chastised, told no, slapped if you were speaking Spanish. So I feel like there is the self that quickly follows form once you land or arrive because you need to fit in fast. And then now it's not so much the case because the celebration of culture and individuality and heritage and culture is just much more prominent these days than it was in the beginnings. Sure, I think that now, um, and it was hard. I mean, it, you, 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 when you don't value your own voice, you lose a bit of your soul. And if, if without even knowing it, without even knowing it, uh, and it's hard. I mean, I, I, I. You know, when you have to matriculate for economic survival, yeah. uh, but then you know that's that's quickly discounted because the economics were never the equal to with the quote American economy of someone uh, who had privilege 
uh, could access. So you you were caught, um, and you know that was we were in that that banking approach to education and life. You know, you put in, you put out, you move up. And life in cultural worlds is not a banking system. You know, uh, life in cultural worlds is messy. It's 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 engaging. It's personal. Uh, sometimes you want to push back from it, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. but, but it is very much engaging and it's messy and you, you, but it's love. But talk uh, about that. Cause I know we've talked a lot about, and you've been my mentor and champion and backbone kind of coaching me through some of my bigger issues, both on a personal and professional level, but talk about the leaning into it. Cause there's a lot of times where, um, being a woman of color and I never really say that cause it sounds like an antiquated term that it. Like it's crazy to me that I still have to categorize people by their by their ethnicity, but but I'm looked at differently because I look differently. So acknowledging that and navigating my steps within corporate America, within community, sometimes feels heavy. Like sometimes I just love I would love to be the person that doesn't really have to think about dynamics as much as I do, as much as I have. So it feels like a heavy, happy burden. And it's a blessing, and I know that, but sometimes it feels heavier. And you've reminded me to lean in. And so I kind of want to talk about what you've seen in your career and what you see now happening in this country as it relates to ethnic identity and leaning in. Well, you know, um, uh, leaning in is a... Is a we, we, we're framing it because we can't find a right, all the right words, but yeah, I would, I'm not talking about the women's movement. The, to, yeah. Correct. Yeah. I, I, I think... What we're saying is being unapologetically comfortable in your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's you know, in a in a very very twisted way. Donald Trump is probably the best thing that ever happened to America uh, because he he has forced uh, people to not avoid. Uh, while, while he practices avoidance, he's forced every citizen in America to think about who they are in relation to society uh, and what do you really believe in as an American citizen. And it forced us all to not uh, to decide that we're, we really aren't invisible, uh, that visibility uh, where it can, be a, it can be negative and it could be deadly. But visibility can also be uh, joy and affirming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to decide the road you choose. Uh, do you, do you uh, put that, that, that all of the emotion and stepping stones, which is if you grow up uh, as a person of color in, in, in America, there are so many layers to your life and some that you have to, in so many incidents in life that you have to put in a box Mm -hmm. and that box leads to may explode may lead to health issues may lead to other issues in your life that you don't know where it leads to because you couldn't celebrate who you are as a fully functional member of your community and as american as a whole i think you know i think it's fun today to, uh, as you say, uh, I, I, I watch young people uh, becoming multicultural and living it and breeding it and fighting it in a way that your generation and my generation couldn't do. Uh, if we did, you were ostracized by your own communities first, mm-hmm. let alone the majority community. Um, but I think now, because we have commoditized America, culture is needed for everyone uh, because that's where the ideas will come from. That's where the new wealth comes from. Now, whether it's financial wealth or community wealth or uh, political wealth, that will come from this new America that has to all all have to have these... We have to now enlighten or... Or unleash our complex brains, and and our complexity of brains, of culture and logic, 
you know, becomes a tremendous asset because it brings such a difference of opinion, a wellness of experiences from previous generations to be able to go talk and tap uh, elders that are still here who, who see the world in different ways. That's, a, that's, that's our brain power going forward. That's our way of learning. That's, that's our intellectual capital. Today, that, that's our strategic advantage. Yeah. Uh, now it's hard. Uh, doesn't mean that, uh, look, I have a situation now where um, you, you, you have to f- reconcile in yourself or an opportunity that you could not have experienced before. Do you, do you internalize it? Or do you turn it around and make it to your competitive advantage? Uh, that's a, that only requires, that has to continue to be a dialogue among people who are going through the same things. Say on a daily basis. It's a daily basis. We, were, we had another session talking about um, a peer in the industry and the journey in terms of embracing multiculturalism or your place in it because you get placed there. You know, un, Unbeknownst to you, that's how people see you is different. So... When I moved to Austin back in 1995, I didn't know I was darker skinned. I didn't know or think about where I came from. I never had identified myself as anything other than Audrey Ponzio, you know? Because in the community that I grew up, everybody kind of looked like me. So it wasn't until I was walking on UT campus and, and getting, you know, Muslim Student Association invites, those flyers that people would pass around from different student organizations, Indian American students invites, and I'm like, wait a minute, why? I'm only getting those. Like, why isn't why aren't the Tridelts asking me to join their sorority? Like, why am I only getting the ethnic um, invitations? And then I, I seriously, I kid you not, I look down at my skin. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm darker skin. I had no. It's not. It was never anything I had to think about or ponder. And all of a sudden, I was acutely aware of how the world saw me as different. And I didn't necessarily do anything with that. I just kind of filed it. And it didn't mean something, and probably until I meant something because I, I cared about my family, I cared about my culture, I cared about, and and culture for me wasn't necessarily my Latino identity. It was my grandmother, our food. You know, if people were going to look at me different, I wanted to know why they looked at me different. So from a very early age, I decided that I was going to learn and master my grandmother's tongue. I don't know that I'm, I'm still working on mastery, and at different points in my career, I've probably been better at it. But I was going to. I was going to learn the things that were important to her because at some point they were slapped out of her in, in an effort to get along, to go along, or to thrive. So being of a certain color, of a certain nationality, didn't mean something until you know, corporate America decided that it was a value and that I needed to be tapped for diversity lead for this or diversity lead for that. And I was put kind of on, a, on a, another team task to help represent diversity and, and from a client perspective, and I and I went with it, and I've kind of built a career out of it. And at some point, and this is a conversation that you and I had last week. At some point, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to just be brown. I wanted to be brilliant. I didn't just want these opportunities. I wanted all opportunities, and I wanted to make sure that I had those possibilities open to my team. And which is funny because then I started my own team. And what they would say and what they remind me, because I try and remind them, like, we do tech, we do consumer, we do segments, like the ones that we come from, but let's not pigeonhole ourselves into any one thing. And what they remind me is we got to own who we are, first and foremost, and then we got to take the opportunities that come if they make sense. So I think it's it's so funny because my my rejection point came in, in a way that I thought I was protecting my team to make sure that they had access to every opportunity that came our way and that they weren't pigeonholed or marginalized because of what they look like. And then when I start my own company, the collective, and it's theirs too, they're the ones reminding me, like, no, 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 we're going to be looked at differently no matter what. We might as well own it and we might as well double down and make sure that the way we do it continues to evolve and continues to change and reflect the times with which we live. So I, I, I have hope for the future based on these guys in the room and the ones outside because I feel like they're better at carrying their weight, they're better at carrying their culture. Just with age and, and the times that we live in, I feel like they're, they're my teachers. Who are yours? Well, let me comment on what you said first okay. before that I will um, 
say that the one community, the community that you grew up in, you would, what you knew was love. Yeah. Do not, not, never underestimate the power of that love of everyday life where you were loved at every turn. I don't care if the love was messy. The community, the communities were messy. Yes, you know, there's, but your community was full of love. And what community and, and how it functioned um, was, and the rituals were community. You, you were loved. There was a safety in growing up where you grew up. And when you stepped out of that safety and that love, you saw hostility. You may have saw subtle hostility or overt hostility, but that reservoir of love that is multi-generational where you come from, even though the language might have been suspended for a minute, the basics of you being able to pick it up again and thrive on it and now uh, you know, go in overdrive with it uh, is powerful. That is the love. That is, that is what why people move to San Francisco, New Orleans, New York, uh, and East Austin is because they're looking for that beloved community that comes naturally from your DNA and where you were raised. Uh, other people are looking to colonize that uh, versus what you have had as a natural birthright. Many times when we aspired for the American dream, uh, we were taught that uh, we needed to conform to this way, and 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 it, it, but those but, but those and then we had laws that reinforce uh, folks being second class citizens or owned or the the from slavery to segregation to resegregation uh, to taking away language and identity. It was it was a legal process that mm-hmm. aided in that. Uh, but those communities thrived. I mean, it was a soul, and uh, it was a beloved community. It was not whether whether you were a doctor, or whether you were a lawyer, or whether you you were a teacher. They you lived next door to the plumber or the the cook, and everybody lived next to each other in a community because there was a collective soul and love. Until when the laws changed, and you know, uh, and people could. Corporate America began to, uh, in many ways, uh, open the door, but they closed it not long after. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because we, we didn't realize, you know, that whites were poor too. Yeah. And they were trying and, to matriculate. In many cases still are. In many cases still are. And there was a, there was a, they, they were left behind too. Yeah. Uh, but obviously they had a little bit more choices than we had in certain areas, uh, and they lost their definition of community. And what you see in young and in, in generations now is folks looked at community as moving up and material wealth. Our communities looked at community as sharing the rituals that matter to us based on love. Um, you know, when you talk about who were my teachers, uh, you know the, you know, teachers is, is it's a to me it's a broad word. I guess I look at teachers as some of your staff when I go sit down and talk to them. Uh, I look at teachers from books I've read. I'm a reader, so I I I look at uh, you know my favorite writer, a gentleman by the name of Howard Thurman, who. Uh, was really a, uh, a mystic and a theologian, but also a counselor to those in leadership. And um, it was... You're my Howard Thurman. <laughs> and, and it was about the soul of life and community and not to look at people in a, in, in a capitalistic viewpoint, but that you can be the best you can be in participating as an American and build a quality of life and, and be part of that economic system that you're in, because no system is perfect. Uh, I, I will say I, I, I love being an American. I love Me being too. American and eating at this time of distress. That, Me too. Because I think that I'm, 
at this juncture, we have more opportunity now than ever because we knew what love was in the community. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, there's a, there's a humanization, there's, a, um, there's, there's that power of love, and then there's the ability to teach and learn and you know learning and if we go I hate the I hate the term going back but if we learn from previous generations uh, even today that wisdom uh, of youth and the wisdom of age matter more now than ever mm-hmm. uh, and we need to have these healthy exchanges because that's where the ideas come from but the love that 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 comes from these exchanges for a long time we looked at what community was a house in the suburb uh you know two cars uh we looked at the american dream in this very production oriented way where today technology look we're on a computer and the podcast and some microphones and before we could we ever do this and now we're talking to the world uh we the cost of participation is low the cell phone the cell phone is not just a cell phone globally the cell phone around the world is a medical tool it's a tool of exchange for business the telephone is a banking system the telephone is not just voice it's data it's commerce it's health and so the telephone is the most powerful tool in in the world right now Mm -hmm. uh, that has transformed the lives of poor people around the world and it's transformed us. And yet, it allows us to have more community now than ever, but the community is to using the technology to drive day-to-day interactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my, you know, teachers, oh, there's, there's folks who have lived life, those folks who are trying to live life and come up with ideas. You know, I, I still go back to my mother and father, grandmother and grandfather. I mean, I, I still think that they were... Uh, I laugh on regularly of uh, things they said or did that 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 unveiled the level of complexity, particularly in the community. I think about it regularly. Uh, the neighbors uh, that I grew up in, the, the wider community, uh, uh, those were my heroes. Those were my mentors and teachers, and uh, those folks didn't have credentials. No. Uh, those folks had everyday wisdom um, and faith and they had a community now it was crazy but that that insanity was also built upon creating choices you learn what right and wrong was you learn what uh, uh, your own critical thinking because that's where critical thinking originated in those exchanges not in a banking system of education it, it it's it's that came from those interactions from those people who could see through you and challenge and get the best out of you. Uh, that was the, that was the, and then and in the wider sphere of, of folks like that is always what I was attracted to, was people who could challenge you to be better, uh, uh, and who had had stepping stones, who could tell you stories. So storytelling to me is one of the most powerful learning tools that is undervalued. Um, and then you know right now you know we have to create more learning dynamics. Because technology, you know, somebody in their 20s is much smarter about the world than I am. Yeah. And I, you know, I can't, I'm not intimidated by that. I want to I learn. It's exciting. I want to know what they know. Yeah. Why do you <laughs> think I surround myself with that? <laughs> I want to teach, I want them to teach <laughs> me, okay? You think this isn't on purpose? <laughs> you know, so I, I think if we continue to, to marry the love that we grew up with, with the modern tools to improve everyday life unapologetically, uh, you know, all this other, all the other barriers that we face, you find a way around them. You don't, you don't internalize them. You, you take a deep breath and say, okay, I still have love somewhere. And you draw on that. And once you still draw on that community love of your, of your ancestors, you can get through anything. You can get through anything. Uh, that that uh, you know one of my f- uh, favorite places to go in New Orleans is a hotel, the Le Pavillon Hotel, and the rituals of this hotel was that we all of the folks would gather uh, and have breakfast and read. It was the hotel before that was the Punch Train Hotel, and people would gather and read the newspapers and 
discussed what was going on in the world before they went into their offices. And, and the, the waitresses were family. And so I went home and, and uh, both of the, the two women who took very good care of me uh, retired. And so I, I um, and now I'm trying to find them because I never, we never did exchange phone numbers, but we saw each other holidays every day for 20 years almost. But we were part of each other's lives, and uh, we shared wisdom and stories, and uh, I learned about things that were going on in the community from them because mm-hmm. people would would not realize how brilliant these people were, mm-hmm. and and uh, I, I I realized then I've become them. Uh, in many ways because they they were important to me uh, as an anchor. They were the rituals that mattered and an expanded community of love uh, that uh, that you could share the humor, joy with of the little things and they meant to me as much as uh, I'm sure I, I hope I meant to them. Uh, but when they retired, it was bitter you sort of was nostalgic because I'm like, wow, I don't have that community anymore. That was important. But yet, it was ironic because the people who were still there stepped up and filled those gaps. gaps And they're younger. (laughs) Uh, And now I'm talking to them because they're younger than me that uh, in a way that is engaging. So I understand my responsibility to teach and learn and learn and teach. Um, and that's what generational community is about. And that's in a competitive advantage. So when you look at the overall system, look, this, this, this is still more opportunity now than ever. In many ways, uh, the, the political fray we find ourselves in forces you to, to affirm your identity. Uh, yeah. in your joy and be cognizant and well, because people are going to look at you and assign an identity regardless so either in my mind either you claim it and understand what it means and frame it or it'll be it'll be done for you well you know one thing that, that I don't do that I, I don't know how to do I can't frame who I am I can't dichotomize it I can't uh build a code to who I am. But you can define what you stand for. Well, de- de- defining what you stand for is an act. But the love that you came from and the generations come you come from there, that is priceless. That is a that is a, a invaluable well that no one can take away from you and there's no price on it. Now, what you do with it as a tactic that's something totally different. Uh, how do you apply it? How do you draw on it? How do you protect it? How do you grow with it? How do you celebrate it? It's not an identity. It's a well. It's love. That is a that is a convergence of head, heart, and community uh, that we want to. If we think we need to step into this other world and dichotomize it you can lose yourself a bit but if you stay in it you know you know i could have i could have a cup of coffee with uh, anybody that look like me and uh that's that's a staunch quote titled republican because i don't look at him as a republican or mm-hmm. her as a republican i look at them as who are you as a human being what's your well yeah. give me your story give me your well i'm not going to define you by a box i'm going to define you by your well your love. Not, I'm not going to define you by any box that you in, uh, because once you do that, I still don't know you. Mm-hmm. And the love that I, that your community and my community that we grew up in, was you weren't defined by those boxes. You were defined by who your friends were, your family was, yeah. the rituals, the you know your values. Uh, you lived your values, uh, and that is the well. Uh, that the I quote identity, that's just a that's just a strategy and tactic and a, a way to to move a politics or process or policy or you know that's just a pro, that's just an intellectual process. It's not the well of love. The core. So, in doing business with you and working with you on projects and the speed with which I was probably trained to some extent in New York, for efficiency's sake, getting it done. 
you've slowed me down and that and made me take stock in the process and am I contextualizing it in the the current situation and am I looking at the community that I'm trying to engage with am I slowing down and understanding that my way isn't necessarily the way I want you to kind of share with whoever may be listening at some point in time the importance of slow because I feel like when you talk about love and when you talk about community and and being that source of support and that center for whoever may be in your circle I feel like it's important to look at not just what happens in community, but what happens in business and really taking your time. So you asked about um, who did I learn from a mentor? But it was a, it was a, uh, it's funny you bring this up, this question. Um, an old guy. Gus? No, not Gus. Okay. Uh, I named Ben Johnson. He was the richest African-American in the state of Louisiana. He owned funeral homes in the 1930s uh, in Louisiana and deep segregation. He built these majestic funeral homes because his theme was people treated you like dirt when you were alive. I'm going to treat you like a king and queen on your way out. Oh, wow. So he built in small town Louisiana these majestic funeral homes. And actually, he was the model for... You know the majority of community funeral homes. He was he did that in rural Louisiana. He was a man who could get people off a of death row in the fifties, and so he was he. But he taught me one thing, and one frame that I've never forgotten. And this was thirty years ago. He says, "Think fast, move slow." And isn't that a book now? No, it should be. Here's <laughs> <laughs> the title. Said thinking oh, fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's called think. Uh, fast and slow yeah, okay. is the name of the book you're talking about but he was think think fast move slow and that was his way of saying um, you, you, you know what you see is not always what is and if you move fast you miss the intent of the person the individual you miss the intent of with the transaction you miss the intention of any interaction without looking at it from multiple layers and levels, uh, and for him it was always back to community. It was he be, he had a he was he believed in the beloved community. In fact, on his tombstone he wanted to say, I don't know, never visited the tomb, but it was he wanted on it. I tried because he was about community, um, and so it was never about. You know, it was a community. It was never about always material things. It was all about the, the consciousness of 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 helping people who had less than him, or or utilizing his brain power to the best of his ability to help others. But the think fast, move slow was his way of 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 you know staying out of court. I call it because transactions can lead to battles and fights if you don't know who you're in business with. Now. You know, there's the relational world and the transactional world. Technology has made transactions go faster and invisible. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a good thing in some ways. It's broken down many barriers in the world. It allows for global commerce. On the other hand, with the lost art of learning about people and their customers and the behaviors of others and the values and the well that they come from can can skew how, when mad day comes, how do you view resolving conflict? Because for me, my base is always resolving conflict. What, what, what is valuable to you? What is valuable to me? Can I hear you? Can you hear me? And can you hear me beyond just the words or just the transaction or just what's on paper? Can you hear me? And do I know you? And so that well requires time because you don't really know somebody or some entity unless you go through something with them. Ups, downs, sideways, wins, losses. You need to know that. And you don't know that until there's that friction that you go through. And time requires that. Some people don't trust very easily. Communities of Who? Me. Color, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. Uh, and, and that well of slowing down um, what is the meaning of the transaction 
You know, it's not just the, the, the yeah. objective of the end goal of the transaction. What is the meaning of it? And how does it impact who and why? Um, and community development is not an app. No. Um, community, you know, it's not an app. It's not a transaction. You know, uh, it looks like it when there's, when there's, quote, change or gentrification that's going on because we're changing from old housing to modern housing. Uh, and but, it goes fast. And, it, and the character is one thing, but I still say you can build character, but you can't build soul. Mm -hmm. um, and so soul is about the well of that com of people. Uh, some of that can be created when those people come together again uh, in a certain environment or a certain place. The so place matters. But time. Um, the second book was that... that um, Silent language. Uh, it was learning how people do business around the world. Uh, people in Japan do business different than folks in Brazil, and definitely do different than people in Saudi Arabia, and um, and definitely do business different than London or New York. So learning somebody's story and where they come from is how they look at trust, how they build trust, and each community and their rituals. Uh, define that, and that requires you to slow down to find out. Well, where is somebody's love? Where do they? Where does their love come from? Yeah. Um, no, you can only do that. You can't do it in a transaction. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's it's helpful. And I, I what I'm learning in my own process is there's a generational mindfulness, and then you know I have to be mindful of who I'm interacting with, whether they're younger or older. I have to be mindful of their context or frame of reference and what that looks like, and and it, funny enough, leaving New York has slowed me down in the best possible way and returned me back to the very basics of, of community, of culture, of family, of priority. Of, and there's nothing, there's, it's not to say that that doesn't exist in New York. It absolutely does in a thousand different ways. And there's like a, um, an, an urban affection. And I think Whitman called it just like I, I cultivated my love of strangers in that city and strangers became like family or angels or guides in that city but I feel like on a personal level and on a professional level I, I needed to get back to the basics and that only happened when I left because of because of what needed to be and, and what I think uh, this community demands so yeah well you had put love in a box and love can't be in a and, and, we, and we all do that when you move to another community you don't know what you're going to find. Yeah. And you have to protect yourself. You have to put a wall up. You have to find that trust and build that trust. And in a transactional environment, yeah, it's good people. I'm not mm -hmm. saying there aren't. Uh, and uh, I'm no, I've got some wonderful friends in New York. And, uh, you know, there is a community. There's neighborhoods that are yeah. people never leave. They've been there for generations. There's, there's a heart there. Absolutely. I think my, my sense was I created community, you know, within my neighborhood, within my friend circle, within, you know, my workplace. The, those, those women and men became family. The, the client structure, I think the client, the service dynamic, because I've always been in a service industry, the, the level of output that was expected, the time with which it was expected, I felt like didn't allow for a certain amount of cultivation of relation, deeper relationships, very strong relationships. I mean, I've delivered wedding cakes for clients. <laughs> I've organized funerals for clients. I mean, but, but that was very unique. Right. Um, yes, it's funny uh, you mentioned your, um, the, the, the gentleman that was on a talk show in your previous life was talking about the political environment and I laughed because I thought about you. Mm -hmm. uh, and as he was talking about it, and he had an interview with a young techie from Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. here's this global company with his name on it uh, at a table with this techie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's looking at him because the techie is all in denial about the, the, the context of the outcome of their technology. And and so here's a guy that was that was struggling with culture, mm -hmm. and had his and that was his business and 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 now there is a maturity even among those and those systems. You were you have to look at it. Sometimes you were ahead of your time. You may not have 
felt that way, but because they were made, when money has a way of lulling you into a comfort zone where you don't grow and change. And now they find that in their trust barometer that they do and hmm. uh, that battle of the young techie versus him and it was almost like an alien conversation. And I, and I said to myself, oh, you're welcome to the real world yeah. about cultural change and what matters. And, um, and, and I think he was now being forced to look at, which is what I see happening in your industry, is that there, there, there is a further emotional intelligence that's being added as a technical skill set, whether it be artificial intelligence is trying to drill Replicate, down on your tone, yeah. or your tone of your voice, or what you're reading. There's a there's a large amount of filters that have to find out what is your personal community, mm-hmm. uh, and and yet I watched him struggle and, and recognize that I can't just look at things this way because it worked that way. But now we got to really learn who people are. Yeah. Well, and if you learn who they are, you you understand. I think the only thing I've ever been talented at, truly, is cultivating a good team, building a good team, identifying instinct and 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 talent, and then taking care of or nurturing that team. And if I do that, if I do it well, they nurture the business, and that's the only thing I claim to be semi good at. I think what the skill sets of today and what I see gets prized because of mass media, because of social media, because of the platforms with which everyone gets to operate now. Authenticity is, is, is everything. And, and owning, one, your voice, two, your history, three, the things that would embarrass you are actually the ones that make you most lovable. But I, I, I see that more now than ever before because I was very afraid to own my truth I'm now prodded to do it on a consistent basis. I was demanded to do it, funny enough, when I you know, started working in Dallas and I started working with some really smart women that demanded a certain level of honesty from me in a way that I never thought, I'm like, really, Dallas? You want me to be honest? <laughs> like, really? Because I used to make fun of that city for all of its beauty and, and, and pomp and flash. And now some of the most substantive relationships I've ever had, some of the most meaningful conversations and the most growth, I, most growth I've done in the past decade have come from, from moments that I had there. So I'm excited about the future if it, if it holds more of those relationship values and that culture and that love that you speak of. Because I, I see it. Well, and models folks come from where you come from. Uh, there's, a, there's a rich plethora of people who come from communities that had that quote, what I call beloved community, that, that there was, and it, it forces that level of, I, get to, I need to know you. Yeah. If I don't do business with somebody I don't know. Um, now that can be, we can overprice trust because the weakness, quote weakness sometimes, or you overprice trust and because that can lead to insecurity and sometimes us and we can get set in our ways, we can get old and we don't want to change and we get insecure and don't really realize what you do best, which is cultivate young people and, and bringing new ideas and new people yes. into the story. Yes, and that's a, uh, that's a skill because many people will cut off ingenuity. I always think back to like the military. The military, everything, it takes a rule 10 years for it to change, to be to become part of the norm. It takes 10 years from a policy that's once announced to get 10 years to get implemented. And, and the soldier that comes in at year 11 doesn't even know what existed 10 years before. Uh, and that's our worlds that we live in. I mean, you, you have to uh, share, learn, and, and, and facilitate curiosity and, and getting the best out of people. Uh, but that also requires you to do it for yourself. Uh, and But that love is still... The, so, the source and center. You, and, and, and be, and honor it. It's not a, it's not a negative. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege to, to have that as your DNA. Um, you know, we can try to put it in a box and again, monetize it. But, uh, and to your point, yes, your aspiration of will it impact 
the world and will you be recognized for ideas oh that's here already it it, it but it also depends on at do you have choices at what cost uh, what's the balance um, you know and how much time you willing to to matriculate that way because um, you know privilege is still an issue resource disparity is still an issue um, racism is still an issue uh, you you can't get around those that you can't you can make it debilitating or you can draw on your well and and find joy and wealth in other ways in those relationships that 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 matter sometimes more than money and with that it's a good that's a good close thank you Roy, for joining this little podcast apc chats thank you for having me <laughs>